The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system. Find us at confluenceproject.org. Our permanent camps and village sites were typically not located in floodplains. Our temporary camps that were closer to the rivers, those would be in floodplains during times when flooding would likely not occur. Welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. Like most rivers, the mighty Columbia has overflowed its banks now and then throughout its long history. When settlers colonized the Pacific Northwest, they viewed these seasonal floods as a threat to be mitigated. But native people of the region have always understood that flooding helped replenish the landscape around the river, and that helped sustain the health of the entire ecosystem. Today on the Story Gathering Podcast, we'll hear from two members of Northwest Indigenous communities about the history of the Columbia watershed and about new efforts to improve wildlife habitat and water quality, and at the same time, promote equity and social justice. Tierra Farrow Furman is an enrolled member of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation and manages the tribe's cultural resources protection program. David Lewis is an Oregon State University historian who has researched and written about the original peoples of Oregon and California. He is a member of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde. Their conversation took place as part of a Confluence Conversation in April 2021. The moderator for the event was Ryan Banning, Director of Community Partnerships and Events for the Columbia Slough Watershed Council. I am incredibly excited for this discussion and would especially like to thank our guests for taking the time today to be here, share their stories and voice with us. I'm honored to welcome both of the guests. To provide some context around where the idea of this webinar started, um, four districts, including the Multnomah County Drainage District, have managed how water moves in the Columbia floodplains for over a century now. Those who originally created these districts were interested in finding ways to control nature and separate the land and water. Certain perspectives and approaches are beginning to change. Fortunately, a number of community partners have been a part of a local effort to create a new district that is designed to take a more holistic approach to floodplain management with a stronger commitment to improved wildlife habitat, water quality, and equity and social justice. With the creation of the new district and these commitments, we're hoping that today's discussion can be a space to listen and learn from our guests and hear more about what life was like for indigenous peoples living in and along the floodplains, how the land shaped their lifestyle and culture, how they adapted to flooding, and to learn from traditional ecological knowledge and indigenous land management approaches and practices today. So with that, I would like to ask David um, to open up our discussion and to share a bit about what life looked like uh, for indigenous people living in and along the floodplains. The Multnomahs we know of were living at what we call Salvia Island today. Um, and they called it back then Wapato Island. The Clackamas lived down on the Clackamas River. Uh, Kalali Wallas were next to them at Willamette Falls. Cascades lived mainly up, 
Cascade Locks, what's now called Cascade Locks, but then then called Cascade Rapids on both sides of the river, uh, Skamania. Um, and they were interrelated with um, the Hood River peoples. Um, but this area of the Columbia, or basically East Portland, was a site where people would gather uh, Wapato, would, would come to sort of live through the wintertime because it was a better climate than living in the Columbia Gorge in the wintertime and had a lot of food, had lots of, lots of Wapato growing on the riverbanks in the marshes and sloughs in the area. And they would gather this um, and in vast quantities to trade with peoples in their area and take it back with them to their villages at, at the Cascades. They shared this area uh, with the Clackamas and the Multnomah peoples. They all sort of live in the area peacefully because they lived in kind of a trade zone, economic trade zone, where everybody was kind of interrelated with the, each other. There was always the case that people in, were married outside the tribe. And this kept um, a lot of peaceful interaction with the tribes in this area up and down the river. It appears that sturgeon was a big product in this area. They lived in kind of the same vicinity of the same environment as the Wapato. They were also gathered in the wintertime. And then later in the in the winter, around February or so, we see smelt come into the rivers, the Sandy River, the Calus River. And so that was also a product that they collected in vast quantities, dried up, and then stored and then sold or traded with other peoples. And so that so this was a very rich, wealthy area that the that the Chinook people lived in and trade with many other peoples up and down the river for probably thousands of years. Um, so everybody on the river from the ocean to into the eastern Oregon were all interrelated peoples. It appears that this whole region was a vast economic zone, which is much more important to me than thinking of these people as just hunter-gatherers. Um, they were more than just hunter-gatherers. They had lots of laws and rules and ways of, of interacting with each other that were clearly peaceful and clearly trade relations, economic, and, and that's what uh, settlers encountered when they came here um, uh, to take the lands. So many of our people still live here still live in the Portland area. They still take advantage of these resources. They're still working on restoring our access, restoring our life ways in the area. And uh, we'll be doing this for many years to come. Tara, is there anything that you'd like to add or? Aside from the tribes that, that David mentioned, there are also, you know, lower Columbia Plateau and uh, Columbia tribes that also traveled to the area. Um, although they didn't live there necessarily permanently and year round, they traveled there through the seasonal round to gather those first food resources. Um, those include the Confederate tribes of the Umatilla, the Warm Springs, the Cowlitz, the Klickitat, the Yakima, the Nez Perce, Malala, Wasco, uh, Wishram, and, and Cascades. And as David mentioned, this area was central and important to uh, trade, economy, and also warfare because we were allies and that we would push back the enemy tribes that tried to come into the, the territory, into the area. And so if you think about specifically Willamette Falls, 
uh, being an important fishery, it's very similar to Salilo Falls and that it was a very important fisheries um, and a trade area as well. And so our ancestors lived all along Michiwana, the Columbia River, or we call the Big River, and all of its tributaries year round um, and seasonally as well. So um, our tribal people were aware of their environment and they understood the river systems. And so um, specifically like when flooding would occur. And I know a lot of this talk is about flooding. So I wanna talk a little bit about that. Um, so like our permanent um, camps and village sites were typically not located in floodplains. Our temporary camps that were closer to the rivers, um, those would be in floodplains during times when flooding would likely not occur. So, you know, our ancestors lived in a very different world than we do today. And that uh, connection that they had with the environment, with the land, um, was more of a spiritual and physical connection um, that they had also with the animals of the land and that they were able to communicate with the animals. And the animals warned them of oncoming events of what I call natural processes, but today we call natural disasters um, like flooding. And so, um, you know, having that uh, physical and spiritual connection with the land allowed them to be able to know when something was coming so that they could potentially relocate. You know, floodplains were meant to be continuous and meandering and not to be controlled. And so our ancestors understood that um, and they would occupy those areas based upon those first food resources, um, based upon those connections and intermarriages and intertribal relations that we had with our allied tribes for first food resources, because they were gathering throughout the entire year for subsistence for their everyday life. You mentioned a, a spiritual connection to the land, and I'm, I'm really interested to hear more from you about, specifically in your work, to how that connection shapes uh, your own approach in land management now and how that, how that relationship with the land in the past has sh shaped indigenous approaches to land management and restoration today. We have a creation story um, in which uh, on this earth, before there were humans, it was all animals. And the creator told uh, the animals during a council that there's these beings that are gonna be coming and these beings don't know how to live off the land. And so the animals have to teach the beings how to live off of the land. And so the creator explained to them what these beings were. And our first foods are our water, our salmon and all other aquatic species, our deer and all other big game waterfowl, our roots and our berries. The salmon, he was the first one to stand up and say, I'll give my body to these beings for nourishment for their body. But in return, I'm giving up my voice. So these beings have to be my voice. They have to ensure that I return each year, that I'm honored each year, and that they're being my voice and speaking on my behalf. And the deer stood up, said, I'll give my body to them. I'll give my bones to them for tools. I'll give my skin to them for warmth, for clothing but I too am giving up my voice and they have to be my voice. 
And then all the other animals stood up and the roots and the berries stood up and said that they would give themselves to the people. But we have a reciprocal relationship and responsibility to our first foods in that we are their voice. We have to ensure that they are managed properly, that they return each year, that we say their names each year, that we gather them each year, that we consume them into our bodies each year, and that we share them with each other and celebrate their return each year. And so that is what we call tamanwit or tamanwit, our unwritten law, and that spiritual and physical connection that we have with the land and the resources. Thank you. David, do you have anything to add to that? I can't really say much. It was just about perfect what, what Kara mm -hmm. said. So um, I think that that was great. I, I, I also want to emphasize this notion of not living inside the floodplain. I think that was that's exactly what we're seeing in terms of studies of the Kalapuyans um, and, the, and the Chinookans on the lower river too. They didn't live like right on the river's edge. You know, a great example of that is is um, the the village of, of Shampui, which is one of the earlier settlements of the whites in the Willamette Valley on the on the Willamette River. It was set up right on on the riverbank, uh, so that they could have docks and everything else. And the native people didn't live on the riverbank; they lived on a rise above the riverbank. You know, because they knew that the lower floodplain of the river was going to flood probably every ten years or so. And, and it did in 1862 or three, it flooded and, and wiped out uh, the, whole, the whole town of Shampui and it never came back. Um, and I, I talked to my classes all the time about that. I said, you know, those native people must have been laughing at, the, at that village, at that town. <laughs> so I was thinking, it's going to go away soon. So, you know, we, we, we don't want to move into that town next to the river because that's going to go away. The tribes had these permanent villages up on the up on the bankment, about half a mile to a quarter mile off the river, and the villages that people saw when they were going up down the river were were like like Tara said, these temporary encampments of people living essentially by the river bank in the summer times, just so they can get access to you know ready access to the water and use their canoes right there. But that's not exactly where they lived. They didn't have all. They had all their valuables and all their stored foods and everything else up on their main villages off the riverbank. And I think that's a, um, a lesson that you know Americans really need to learn about the rivers. I mean, you can, you can't control them. They will they will go their own way. And eventually, they were going to have like we have had massive floods come through and wipe out whole areas of, of, of towns like you know Vanport and things like that. So eventually that's going to happen, you know, and we need to sort of perhaps be more respectful of the place we live. Recently on a panel through the River Restoration Northwest, Robin Wall Kimmerer, she spoke about the consequences of an intellectual and philosophical monoculture. And she prefaced that by saying, many of us are aware that a monocultural approach within agriculture leads to instability, smaller yields, less crop diversity, poor soil, um, and that we're living right now or we're experiencing the consequences of an intellectual and philosophical monocultural. Um, as you said, you know, David, you, you mentioned that for too long, many have viewed land as capital and property and natural resources. I guess I'm, I'm interested in how, how do you how do you integrate traditional ecological knowledge and scientific knowledge coming together? How do you view that happening? 
um, what are steps forward there? We need to somehow reach back into the knowledge that we have from our old histories, from our, our elders, and, and learn. And, and in many ways, some tribes, we really have to learn what they meant by some of these oral histories because we really don't know yet. Uh, we haven't, our cultures were so interrupted and so we were so thrust down um, by colonization, by assimilation that, that we, we forgot much of our knowledge. And so we need to relearn these things in some ways. I think that there are some lessons, you know, uh, like we like we're talking about floodplains here, but there's lessons in the in the fire cycles, and there's lessons all over the place that American civilization has ignored for now 180 years in Oregon, has you know ignored the fact that we have all these stories and we know we have all this history and that our stories are history sometimes, and 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 maybe taking some bits of knowledge. And, and, and help and getting the tribes to help us understand these this this the philosophy of living with the environment living with in a relationship a long-term relationship with the environment can help us to begin putting together projects where we begin to manage the land in the appropriate manner manage the river fluxes manage all the forests in in the appropriate manners and i think that I guess technologies would help us sort of study it and figure out what's going to work uh, best and what's the best way to work in this new environment we're in. Because I don't see us necessarily completely changing American culture, but um, you know we can access tribal knowledge, uh, access you know get get tribes involved in the, in, in in the answers to some of the problems we have today. In terms of climate change and you know all these things and and use technology to help us live live better lives along with the earth and so and that's i think there is no perfect solution um mm. and we haven't yet tried that, that that's the biggest problem i think there's been nobody yet besides a few tribes have tried to so how to find a way to integrate modern technology with tribal knowledge tara do you have any any thoughts as well? I agree with what David has said. You know, um, tribes have managed their cultural and natural resources since time immemorial. Um, we look at land management from a holistic um, aspect, uh, meaning that those landscapes are all interconnected from the ridge top of the mountains to the floodplains of the rivers. Um, our first foods span across that entire landscape and they all coincide with each other. So the management also has to coincide from a landscape and holistic approach. The Umatilla tribe, our Department of Natural Resources has developed a first foods concept and a first foods mission uh, that is to uh, protect, restore, and enhance the first foods for the perpetual cultural, economic, and sovereign benefit of the Confederated tribes. And we accomplished this utilizing traditional ecological and cultural knowledge and science to inform population habitat management goals and actions and natural resource policies and regulatory mechanisms. So we are actually utilizing the information from our oral history information, from our place names, data, from traditional knowledge about management of our resources and then applying it to the landscape. We've developed a river vision um, that we feel is very holistic that 
is all about enhancing floodplains, which the floodplains are the river. And so um, we also have an uplands vision. Um, and so we, we work really hard to educate people about our river vision. We feel that the tribe brings a lot of knowledge to the table that, like David said, is a lot of times unrecognized or devalued. Um, but the, like I said, the tribe's been doing it for thousands of years and we know how to manage and protect our resources. Thank you. I know this is a not an easy question, um, but as a non-native individual, what are ways, I guess, for our audience, you know, I'm hearing that um, part of it is just a lack of a voice and representation. And what are ways that non-native individuals um, can advocate or help encourage that type of restoration work and approach and voice? I think definitely um, reaching out to the tribes and seeing if they have an interest in your project, seeing if they have thoughts or ideas for uh, benefits or an interest in co-management of the resources. Um, consult early on in the planning phase of projects uh, for tribal review and input. Because like David said, a lot of times we're brought in at the end and we're like, okay, you guys have already got your mindset of what you're going to be doing. Um, another good thing is um, education and outreach. Um, educate yourselves about tribes, their resources, things that are important to them, or ask the tribe to help educate you about them. Uh, we do a lot of education and outreach. Other tribes do the same thing. Um, I think also understanding that tribes are sovereign nations um, and that we may have different views or management practices but still consulting with us is, is really important. And I think last but not least is if you have first food resources, specifically um, plant resources that can be gathered, um, maybe enter into some type of an access agreement with the tribe so that those community members can go out and propagate those resources, because once you start gathering them, they come back in more abundance, they come back healthier. It's just a benefit for uh, the entire um, ecosystem. It sounds like wonderful things that we can do. Thank you. I appreciate that. David, do you want to add anything there? I like this idea of, of, of people educating themselves. I think that too much um, people want to rely upon us to tell um, everybody our wisdom and there's just not enough of us to go around so uh, I think that it would be be great if, if for me I've been teaching basic native studies uh, and doing basic presentations about native peoples for nearly 20 years and I'm ready to go to the next level uh, frankly um, you know it's now kind of incumbent upon white people non non-native people to begin studying you know, our culture a little more beforehand and then maybe we can enter into higher level discussions about all these kind of things that we're talking about. Uh, I would love to jump to the next level and be able to sort of work on that plane all the time um, rather than have to constantly talk about the basics like you know there's nine tribes in Oregon you know how many times have we got to say that so I'm it, it gets a little bit tiresome so yeah I, I would like to 
jump to the next level? How do we actually solve the problems in our society if we're constantly dealing with the basics uh, uh, that there's native people still in the world and that we didn't go extinct and we don't live all in teepees anymore and you know that kind of stuff? Um, let's do it. I mean, let's let's start. You know, getting to know to know the people that have been living in this land for ten thousand years and have lots of knowledge about how to appropriately manage it. Um, let's learn about that stuff and then approach the tribes and say, hey, I have some ideas and I'd like to learn more from you and let's let's do something really good. Yeah, one of the, in you know, as I was thinking about this conversation, um, the topic or an issue that I've been thinking a lot about is the concept of biocultural restoration. Um, and in my own limited understanding, um, the practice of restoring not only the ecosystems, but the relationship between us and the land. And I'd like to hear just a little bit more about like, what does that look like in practice to you? Um, how is that relevant to this conversation in terms of restoration work and land management approaches? So I think um, in looking at that, you know, there's a lot of cultural practices that um, necessarily aren't being done and so I think uh, providing that cultural continuity in uh, not only to our tribal membership, but to educating our, our non-Indian members is really important. And so, you know, for example, um, we used to maintain our waterways by digging and cleaning out springs because some of the resources would choke out or overpopulate the spring. And so the women, that was technically a, the women's job as they would dig out those springs and open up those, those springs and waterways again. And then the abundance of the resources would start coming back. Um, those areas would be used. And like David mentioned earlier, fire was used a lot um, to, to burn our fields and to clean our, our roots, but also fertilize the ground and keep those minerals in the soil. What I've seen is, is the monoculture of, of, planting trees in our, in our land for, you know, Douglas fir for a, a Douglas fir harvest um, has created a lot of vulnerability um, in, in our forests where there's, there's one crop, one kind of tree. Uh, we have clearly have problems with pests um, coming through and being able to take advantage of that one, that monoculture. And then um, there's not a variety of a good variety of trees. So you don't have natural perhaps fire breaks or you don't have a variety of different harvests of different foods in the forest. Um, you don't, so, so your, your, your chain, the environment is so vastly changed that many of the animals and plants that, that would have originally sort of lived in these forests are, are, can't survive very well. And that all has an effect on on river, our rivers, uh, on how long the water sticks, sticks around, you know, certain, certain trees hold more water than other trees. And so that clearly has an effect on holding water in, in, you know, in the upland forests and stuff. And then now, you know, like the Willamette River is so well channeled with no way to breed it anymore. It's, it's made to be sort of a playground for, you know, Americans um, to sort of ride, drive their boats up and down as fast as possible. Um, the water doesn't stick around the valley long enough. There's no diversity or there's very little diversity in the, in the river channels, you know, where we normally would have had, you know, marshes and swamps and things like that. 
and a great diversity of different species, um, which much of us we use for either food or weaving materials or whatever. Uh, we don't have that anymore. And, and, you know, it's, we're barely having, we're barely able to find that in even the upland streams and creeks and stuff. And, uh, and, or we mean, I know the Grand Ronde tribe is studying the Wapato in the, the, the Willamette Slough, some of these places where, where some native vegetation has survived, but we're still having a hard time because there's so much is channelized and so much is, has been created to, to to get resources to the market, to the international markets and stuff that, um, you know, if we really wanted to restore these things to make a, a working ex ecosystem again, a healthy ecosystem again, we'd begin to sort of try to return all this stuff back to all these rivers and, and forests back to their original environments. Tierra Farrow-Furman is an enrolled member of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, and David Lewis is a member of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde. They spoke during a Confluence Conversation event in April 2021. Support for this program came from the Oregon Cultural Trust and from the Multnomah County Drainage District. To find out more about Confluence and the five completed sites along the Columbia River system, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. Remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence, and that's you. Join us today at confluenceproject.org. And thanks for listening to the Confluence Story Gathering podcast. For more episodes, visit confluenceproject.org or wherever you get your podcasts.